Welcome to the Joseph Wells Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of self-improvement, systems, and society. My guest today is Eric Jorgensen, the author of The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. Eric and I discussed his decision to drop out of college, how he thinks about credentials, and the differences between specialists and generalists. Of course, we also spent a lot of time talking about his book and many of Naval's ideas. I thoroughly enjoyed Eric's book, but I enjoyed this conversation even more. I think you'll find his stories and thoughts to be entertaining, eye-opening, and insightful. Now, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Eric. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, I have to tell you, man, I loved your book, The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. I'm glad. I'm glad. It's a little bit of a mouthful. Um, so I've taken to just calling it the Navalmanac uh, as a nickname. That's good. I like that. I like that. That's kind of like what you started with on Twitter, right? Yeah, I've always kind of referred to it that way. It's it's uh, it wouldn't it would be confusing, I think, for the uninitiated to use that as the published title. Um, right. Though some people wanted me to, so I, I like having it as like a, a nickname for the insiders because um, that's just too many syllables. The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. It is a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> So we're going to discuss that in depth a little bit later, but I'd like to get to know you a bit first. Um, can you tell me a bit about your professional path? Because I think I read somewhere that you dropped out of college. Is that is that correct? Yeah, it's it's half correct. Um, I'm like a I'm a dropout with a degree, um, which is kind of a strange thing. Um, so I went to Michigan State, uh, and my plan was to do three degrees in five years. Wow. And then after the fourth year, I got this internship at the Kaufman Foundation, which is this enormous uh, endowed foundation that does research and supports entrepreneurship. So they have funded Startup Weekend and General Assembly, and uh, they helped Sarah Lacey, you know, write her first book. Um, there's all kinds of stuff behind that that is uh, attributed to Kaufman Foundation, mm-hmm. um, and so I was going to do an internship there at Kaufman Labs, which is their startup incubator, and my, literally my first day of work, I went down there, like really excited to start. I was like wearing a sweater vest. This is my first like adult job. And, uh, Bo Fishback, who was, who was my boss and who ran Kaufman labs there, uh, was like, uh, before you start that paperwork, um, I'm actually going to go quit and start a company. Uh, do you want to come with me instead of starting here? And I was like, absolutely. No questions asked. Like, I love you. I want to work for you wherever you are. Um, so I didn't even finish the paperwork at Kaufman. I was just kind of like started sitting at the corner of his office and working on Zarly, um, back in 2011. And I ended up just never going back to school for that last year. Um, so I I kind of, uh, haggled my way through like getting a degree while working full time, um, in San Francisco and, you know, just was lucky to have done enough for the business college, um, over the years and, and made some connections with professors and staff that they were kind of like, yeah, sure. Like, uh, you know, we'll call it an independent study and, uh, <laughs> and we'll get it done. So I, I like didn't walk in graduation. I was already living in San Francisco. I just kind of like, you know, just received my diploma in the mail one day. I was like, Oh, it's, it's kind of anticlimactic, but I'm glad we crossed the finish line. Um, that, that's a crazy story. I, I can't think of anybody else who has had even, uh, you know, close to a similar experience. You know, like a lot of people get the internship, and then at the end of the internship, they get the job with the company, right? But not not their boss on the first day saying, hey, now forget this. We're going to go start something else. 
Yeah. Yeah. It was a little, it was a little tenuous. Um, and I started, you know, I had no like skills or anything. So, um, I started for just like a very, very low monthly contract. Uh, and there were like six of us that all lived together in this two bedroom apartment. Um, it was like a, a flop house, uh, and we worked, you know, 80 hour weeks and, um, it was kind of a crazy, like career start. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. What made Bo want to hire you? like without even really knowing you right i have no idea um i mean i was i was quite proactive i guess um you know which seemed normal to me but now looking back like there's just not that many you know 20 21 year olds who are like doing things and asking for jobs and like have you know proof of work essentially um so i i put a lot of effort into um you know i'd organize some events I'd done some writing. I had at least tried to start companies in college, which were like horrific failures, um, (laughs) all, but I learned things from them. And so when I, you know, met him and saw what Kaufman was doing, I thought it was so cool. And I would just really, really earnestly like ask for a job, um, which, you know, a lot of people apply for jobs, but not a lot of people just like go up and ask for them. And it is strange how much of a difference that makes. Um, so looking back now, you know, I was surprised by how successful it was at the time, but it just seemed like trying to take opportunities. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think a lot of people would be super uncomfortable just going up and asking for a job. What what possessed you to do that? Right. Because like most most people think, OK, I need to go through the process. I need to fill out the application. But you're saying that you can just kind of skip that. Yeah, I, I had this mindset that. uh asking for a job and it telling it is different to ask for a job than to tell someone that you love what they're doing, that you admire them and that you really want to work for them. Mm. Um, it's a subtle, like kind of difference in language, but it's a huge, um, it's a huge difference. And my mindset was that to tell someone that you loved what they were doing and that you wanted to work for them is an enormous compliment. Um, you know, I need a job, please give me one is very different from dude. I love everything that you're doing. I'm really impressed with the work. I totally get the mission. It aligns with some of the stuff that I'm already super interested in. Mm. Um, you know, please give me an opportunity to show you what I can do for you. And, and I just really want to like, I want to help further what you're working on already. Um, you know, that, that lands really differently. Um, and I think, you know, I grew up in a small business household. Um, and so I kind of had, I had admiration for, for employers. And I knew that, you know, somebody wanting to work for you is a huge compliment. Um, right. and that, that, that is kind of a, you have to really respect someone to have that attitude towards them. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So how, if you're going to take that path, how do you get over, I don't know if it would be called imposter syndrome, but maybe just the lack of experience, right? So you admire somebody you like what they're doing. You want to contribute to that, but maybe you don't have any really demonstrable skills that you can say, this is exactly what I can do for you. How do you sell yourself to that person? Yeah, I think people underappreciate the value of just earnestness and and hard work. Um, you know, almost somebody in in that position who is, you know, hiring you knows how probably to train you and how to give you the skills um and should know how to use you in order to get that mission accomplished. Um and you can kind of trust them to put you where on the team you need to be and to give you the skills, you know, just like a coach, like most athletes show up to a coach, you know, a little bit of 
a misfit for the team, not necessarily having all of the skills or all knowing their role arriving at the team. Mm -hmm. Um, but you rely on the coach to kind of, Hey, you really need to work on, you know, your rebounding for the benefit of the team. You know, you're going to be the, the boards and assists guy. Like, um, but if you come into that with enthusiasm and with hard work and earnestness, like that can carry you a really long way. And, and you may end up, you know, within three or six months being way better than somebody who comes in with those skills, but without the earnestness and, you know, that proactivity and the desire to learn, um, and, and really be a part of that team and that mission. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I've, I've found that oftentimes the people who are the best, um, employees and, and fit the best into a role are the ones who have had so-called like shitty jobs, right? Like they've worked landscaping or they've worked food service or some kind of just like job that's not really that pleasant to do. Has that been your experience? Uh, I've done some of those. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, in a small business house, I, as soon as I could walk, I was going to my dad's office on the weekends and emptying trash cans and cleaning and stuff. Um, I did enough landscaping to know I didn't want to spend my life uh, standing in the sun with a shovel. Um, yeah. I, so I, it helps to have a breadth of experience, um, sure. but it also helps to know kind of know enough about what interests you to know, to get yourself into a place where you're like, I'm really, this environment is going to get the best out of me. And I really want for myself to put all of myself into this work. Mm. I think, I think, um, managers and employers and, and, you know, founders can feel that in someone and that's when you are at your best. And that's when the company gets the best from you, um, is, is when what you're doing really aligns with who and what you want to be long-term. Um, so that you're really approaching it kind of with, with your whole heart and all your enthusiasm. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So you wrote a really interesting article about credentials. Can you explain how you think about that idea? Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. I think that there's kind of two broadly, there's two types of people. There's people who pursue credentials um, and there's people who create their own credentials um, either because they have to, um, or because they're just a little bit more independent and that's what they want to do. Mm -hmm. Um, so gathering credentials is maybe the person who, you know, went to Stanford, worked at Google, worked at Stripe, and, and they're just kind of collecting logos. Um, they talk about where they're from. They talk about, you know, what, where they've been, um, and that is a different, like Google probably uh, is not different for them having been there, but they are different for having been at Google. Yeah. You know, um, they are letting the institutions that they were at define them rather than being someone who is completely irreplaceable at, they, they created something that would not have been created without them um, or achieved something, you know, quite unique. So there's a ton of ways to kind of build your own credential. Um, you know, and it's everything from, uh, I was just listening to this podcast, um, with David Goggins, who's like, he's done a bunch of insane stuff. Yeah. Uh, there's no reason that he had to go set like the pull-up world record and do like 6,000 pull-ups in 24 hours or something like that. He just decided to, and then he did it. And now, you know, he is transformed because of that. And he, is stronger because of that. And he is kind of making this reputation out of choosing to do these insane things. Like he is building his credential. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I think he was a, in special ops too. So like, there's a yeah. lot of guys in special ops 
there's not a lot of guys uh, who have gone through special ops training like three times and run, you know, eight ultra marathons in a row and and uh, have set the pull up world record or something. Um, so it is not just the one thing that he did, which is like become a special ops guy. It is the extra credentials that he built on top of that. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to work through a post a little bit. Um, this kind of the, the sequel to that, that is how you build your own credentials. Um, and some of the ways, some of the patterns that you kind of see of those people, some of them, you know, write books, some of them start companies, some of them, uh, have, you know, crazy athletic feats, you know, Richard Branson, um, you know, hot air ballooning across the Atlantic, it, just <laughs> crazy, crazy stuff. You would think of something and they're like, yeah, I'm going to do it. Um, just to kind of be unique and, and put their mark on the universe. Uh, and I think there's a lot of um, interesting stuff to unpack there. I think it's what you're doing. I think a lot of the rite of passage fellows um, are kind of following that instinct to like create something fresh to create their own credential through writing and through study. And um, you know, by, by kind of putting something unique out into the universe. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I think so there are like a couple interesting ways we can go here. First, I, I'm wondering if you've heard of Colin O'Brady. No, tell me. So th this guy came to mind when you mentioned David Goggins. And actually, when I read your article about credentials, you have this picture in there of a guy who's paddleboarding across the Atlantic, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know who that is, but that picture reminded me of Colin O'Brady, who does these just insane uh, physical feats, I guess. So he and a, a team of people rode um, from the tip of South America to Antarctica. I don't remember what that stretch of water is called, but it's like supposed to be the most treacherous stretch of water in the world, basically. Yeah. And they, they wrote the Drake passage. Yes. Yeah. The Drake passage. That's exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah. And so he did that after he walked across Antarctica by himself without, you know, without any resupply or anything like that. He set the speed record for walking across Antarctica. So he, this guy certainly makes his own credentials and he's just like totally insane and really fun to follow. Yeah. Um, kind of coming back to rite of passage, I think I think building your own credentials is exactly what people are doing when they're combining their unique interests, and that's what David kind of talks about as being your personal monopoly, right? So, like like you said with David Goggins, special ops, pull up record, all these just other insane things, and when you combine them together, you have your own. You're a specialist in your own way to kind of take, you know. Um, uh, a line out of your your other article here about specialists versus versus generalists. Yeah. One one question I have about this though is accumulating credentials. I don't I don't think we should discredit that, right? I think that most people are best equipped to accumulate credentials rather than create their own. How, how do you think about that? Yeah, I, I don't mean to discredit accumulating credentials. It, it was more an attempt at categorization than, sure, um, yeah, yeah. you know, anything hierarchical. Because uh, I do, you know, I want my doctors to have accumulated credentials. <laughs> um, and there's a lot to be said. There are, you know, wildly brilliant people who, you know, have gone through these incredible organizations. Um, so it, it is more to say that there are other paths um, that if if you don't have the credentials you can build your own. Like mm. it, it is not to say that if you don't have, you know, your Harvard MBA, you can't start a company or if you haven't gone to Juilliard, you can't be an artist, you know, like that, that is, um, it is more to suggest that there are alternative paths um, and accumulating credentials. Like, you know, there's um, another post that, or another thought train of thought that 
um, I have that is, you know, some of the best ways to transform yourself is to use an environment to like run a program on yourself, essentially. So special ops is a great example of it. Working at Google is probably a very good example of it. going to Stanford or Harvard, where you just put yourself in an environment mm. that is going to transform you. Oh, and okay. as long as, as long as you like stay the course and use your willpower to just continue forward, you can rely on, you know, medical school. You, you keep working hard, you keep studying, you keep passing the tests, like you keep showing up, that experience is going to turn you into a doctor. You don't have to figure out how to become a doctor on your own. You don't have to figure out how to become a Marine in your backyard by like doing pull-ups and forcing yourself, you know, to climb over your fences. Like you go into that program and you just let it run on you and you focus on getting through it and you will come out transformed. And I think that that is, um, it's an, it is a way to overcome, um, is way to channel your willpower, I guess, and to yeah. overcome the chat, the, the challenge of paralysis. Like, you know, if you really want to change your career, um, some schools can, can do that, can run that program on you. And some are not going to be as rigorous and some are going to late, late, give you like room to mess it up for yourself. Um, you know, if you really want to get into shape, like boot camp will do it. Um, or, or some sort of like extreme commitment that is going to see you kind of all the way through. So I think people underappreciate um, that level of commitment and just choosing an environment that will not let you fail and then just sticking with it. Uh, you can really accomplish some incredible things. And when you come out the other side, like you will be in a better position to, to do some, even more of those things like for yourself. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. It's kind of like, I, I've done a lot of different training, physical training type of stuff. Like I've done some marathons and I run, did a half Ironman last year. And I find very, you know, very similar to what you're saying here. If you just pick a program and you let that program, you know, run itself, run itself on you, right. You're going to come out the other side, able to do that thing, right? Like when I started training, I wasn't a triathlete. I really barely knew how to swim. But I just picked this program and it was like, okay, I'm just going to do this every day and I'm going to use the willpower that I have to execute this program. And then at the end, I'm going to be able to do this thing, right? So like mm -hmm. that's, that's a really, uh, I think, powerful takeaway for people is, you know, use, find programs, use your yeah. willpower and transform yourself. It's actually really, it's very simple. It's not easy, but it's very simple. And where did you get that program? Was that from a coach? Is it just kind of a pre-existing thing? I just I just Googled some triathlon training programs and picked the one that I was like, this looks challenging, but easy to follow. Mm. So, you know, it was like a couple hours of searching on Google for something that I thought would fit what I wanted the best. You know, and I didn't come out the other side meddling. Like I wasn't on the podium, right? But like yeah. I finished it, no problem. <laughs> yeah, and a half Ironman is no joke. Like. Yeah, it was tough. I don't think I would do it again. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote another really, really cool article about um, generalists and specialists. So, how do you kind of overlap that idea with the with um, with uh, your article about credentials? Yeah, I think um, the the gist of the article was that uh, specialists are incredibly important. Um, but the best specialists are usually not very unique. Like an incredible surgeon is a great surgeon in the same direction that another surgeon is incredible. Sure. Um, whereas generalists look the same from the beginning of their path, 
but the farther they deviate, the more kind of unique their pattern of interests and overlaps become. And so when you follow like the long arc of being a generalist, you end up as a kind of very, very unique type of specialist mm. because of all of the random patterns and the things that you've studied and the way those skills have overlapped and the rabbit holes you've gone down. So someone for, uh, I mean, the crypto boom showed a lot of these kind of generalists that were suddenly very valuable specialists that are like, they're systems thinkers, they're security engineers, they're, you know, economists, they are game theorists, they're traders, um, and people who had been studying a few of those things already, just because they were naturally interested in them are all of a sudden incredibly valued as specialists in this thing that didn't exist, you know, even a few years before. Um, and so some of it is very difficult to predict. Um, but what matters is really just continuing your pattern as a journalist and studying the things that are interesting to you. Um, you know, Jamie Catherwood is an interesting example. He loves history and finance. And so he has this, you know, stacked these skills of kind of, um, has a really interesting perspective on modern finance because of all of the studies that he's done of, you know, historical bubble crashes and the origins of the stock market and all of the past crazes and things. So it, it's very interesting to see how generalists end up with this very, very unique, you know, personal brand, personal, you know, set of experiences um, and, and capabilities. This like what of all we call specific knowledge, right? Sure. I think the really cool thing about these unique specialists is that. So if you take just a regular specialist, like you said, a surgeon, that's a very defined path. Like if you want to specialize and be a surgeon, you know exactly what you have to do. You go to med school, right? You, you score well on your exams, and then you go into a residency program to become a surgeon, right? Any, basically, anybody can do that. You can follow that path. Nobody is going to become Tim Ferriss or Joe Rogan or Tyler Cowen, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're generalists who have become unique specialists, and nobody is going to be able to ever follow the same path as them. So it's, yeah. that's what I think is really cool about the unique generalist. Yeah, that that is super interesting. Um, in, in specialists, I mean, the best specialists in the world are incredibly valuable because they are what move society forward. You know, the the chart in the um, in the blog post that I wrote actually has. It is from someone who's trying to explain like the meaning of a PhD. Mm -hmm. And so as you study farther and farther into a specific field, there's kind of this circle that is all of human knowledge. And the point of a PhD is to specialize and specialize and specialize and specialize. And the PhD itself is putting like a bump uh, and pushing out on that circle of human knowledge yeah. and expanding the size of that circle. And so the specialists, I mean, we all need lawyers. We all need doctors. We all need people who are incredibly good at a specific you know, series of skills. Um, and humanity as a whole needs those people who specialize so deeply that they can push out that circle of knowledge and mm. kind of move, move the human colossus forward. Um, but we also need, you know, the generalists who are reaching across fields and combining things. And I think that they, you know, kind of help push that circle, help push the people who are pushing that circle out and help everyone who is kind of, um, you know, specializing in their own domain. Uh, you know, it's really helpful to have that those kind of intermixes, um, and and both paths are you know viable and interesting. It just really helps. It helped me to understand which I was on and how I could expect it to evolve as I kind of looked at like, am I making progress? Am I doing the right thing? Am I not specializing enough? You know, it's it's easy um, in a workplace I think to feel 
to look at someone who's really, really good at a few specific things and be like, Oh shit, I'm never going to be as good as they are. They are as they are at that skill. Um, and it's, I found it dip, more difficult as a generalist to kind of understand sometimes what I brought to the table and, and yeah. thinking through that and writing through it kind of helped me see, um, where, where that value comes from and where, you know, over the long arc of that work, where I would end up. Makes sense. I, I saw this interesting chart. I think it was probably in one of David Perel's emails, but it's like this big circle, like you said, kind of, of human knowledge, right? And there are points on the circle and each point on the circle is like, you know, chemistry or physics or literature or whatever. And what was interesting is there was um, a map of lines connecting these disciplines. And I think the connecting factor was like how many times you know, physics was referenced in an academic journal on literature or whatever. So it's showing mm -hmm. the overlap between subjects. And there is an insanely small amount of overlap between subjects. So when you find these unique specialists, they're the type of people who are connecting the dots between these different disciplines and, and making connections and discovering things that otherwise wouldn't be found by specialists. So specialists are expanding the knowledge of, of humanity and then generalists are connecting the dots of, of that knowledge. Yeah, I love that. That, that I got that from, uh, you know, Charlie Munger, I think was one of the, like, original, at least to me, you know, he was one of the people who introduced me to this, you know, you know read broadly, read the 101 and 201 textbooks of every field, and pull ideas from each other and apply them. And, you know, that really reduces your risk of catastrophic failure. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who there's a lot of specialists who try to apply ideas outside their own domain um, and get blindsided by something that they didn't, didn't see coming. And so, you know, Charlie as an investor, you know, I mean, he's a bold polymath. He's like busy architecting buildings and, you know, investing and all kinds of crazy, um, you know, opining on, you know, human psychology because he's, you know, read all these things and kind of like come up with a new theory of the psychology of human misjudgment. Um, so it was fascinating to watch him thread together all of these different ideas. Um, and, and that was kind of a very early, like generalist influence on me. It was like, mm -hmm. Oh wow. Like there, you know, there's a route here, um, which is good for me. My aptitude is a little more like I'd rather go broad than insanely deep. Um, which is a good, is a good thing to know about yourself. You know, I lose steam the deeper I go. Um, but I gain speed as I, as I study more broadly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the same way. I, I think recently I've realized, um, you know, I want to learn broadly, but I don't want to just jump between topics so quickly that it's like kind of useless, right? So you got to find that that balance between, all right, how deep do I want to go here before I jump to something else? Because it needs to be deep enough that I have a substantive understanding of what I'm learning about. Otherwise, I'm just, you know, squandering my time. Yeah. And I find I, I, I'm trying to get better at taking the I call it the, like the test of reality. Like it's easy to read something and be like, yeah, okay, I got it. I'm smart now. I understand it. Um, and if you haven't applied it and seen it work, then you really can't count on the fact that you know anything or are any sure. better off than you were before you read the thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's not always easy to do, um, but it really helps me when I can do it. It really helps me to ingrain what I'm learning and, you know, show that it was a valuable thing to add to my head and make it more memorable and applicable. Yeah. So I, I think this, this next question kind of like ties perfectly into that. In the, in the introduction of, of your book, you wrote, 
I often find myself reviewing sections of the book before making an investment. So that's kind of like the application of, of things that you're reading. And I, I'm really interested in this because I'm working on developing some simple investing rules for myself. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm interested first, what kind of investments do you make? Like what, what things do you invest in? And then second, what rules do you have for yourself around investing? Yeah, um, it's this whole book kind of started as me just like taking notes for myself a little bit and realizing kind of what it was evolving into. Um, so it is really interesting to see some of those, uh, kernels, you know, like Mm -hmm. it started as self-reference. Um, so my, and I should start by saying like almost everything is, you know, very, very long hold index fund, you know, whatever. I'm a very basic, like a bogle guy. Um, but I, my ego is too big probably to just be as strong as Morgan Housel is and just (laughs) leave it all in the index and not touch it. Um, so I do, I actually actively make some investments in, you know, with a, with a percentage. Um, but, uh, my rules, I do, I've done a few small angel investments. Um, and my rules for that are pretty strict. Um, it's basically close friends who I've known for a very long time who I would be very happy if all I did was gift them the money, mm. um, who happen to be working on, something that is in a truly enormous market. Um, so who I wish I could clone myself and go work for like, um, so those, it is a, makes for a pretty high bar. Um, but I am in no way a professional angel investor. Like I don't have a fund. It's all my own money. Um, so, so that I have to have like a really high bar and I have to feel really good about it. Um, and I have to feel really good about it, even if it goes to zero. So that is a, you know, I've got a very different set of rules than like, I would if I ran a fund. I make maybe one investment a year, um, so I think you have to keep that bar really high. Um, you know, aside from that, I'm I am not. I, I almost uh, I started for a short time a blog called "I'm a Terrible Investor" um, because I I am not like incredibly meticulous about it. Um, yeah. I'm learning to get better at trusting myself and like you know um, doing more that is. I'm learning my circle of competence, I guess I should say. Mm. Um, and it, you know, I've been watching companies for 10 years or so in some cases and, you know, kind of writing out even very short, like, I think this is going to happen for these reasons. And then you watch it kind of happen or not happen. And then you're, you know, um, almost paper trading, but like holding yourself accountable through some writing. Um, and it, you know, it's taken me 10 years to like feel good about, making bets based on my judgment now that I've tested it a little more, um, or, or bigger bets, I should say. Um, but yeah, I, I do not recommend anyone takes my investment advice. Let's jump into the book a little bit. It, it pains me to ask this because I wish everyone already knew, but who, who is Naval Ravikant? Can you give us a little background? Yeah. Naval Ravikant is kind of a, a fixture in Silicon Valley. Um, actually like my first, uh, like meeting with a real person in Silicon Valley. The first thing they told me when I was like 18 was like, go read everything on venture hacks, um, which is Nivy and Naval's blog uh, that eventually spun up angel list and, and stuff like that. So that was kind of one of my first gateways into the actual thinking of Silicon Valley. Um, but Naval is, was a immigrant, you know, when he was, I think nine, like moved to New York from India, um, you know, single parents, tough upbringing, you know, early shitty jobs like we were talking about um and 
ended up getting into a good high school in New York and Dartmouth. And that kind of got him into the the tech world um, as an engineer and, you know, left eventually to start a company during the early dot-com boom um, that was kind of a, a lovely um, series. Reading about it now, is it is easy to see as like a series of misadventures um, through the first kind of like 10 years of his career. Um, some of which were, were quite successful um, and some of which were learning opportunities, it looks like. Um, and it all kind of led into the founding of AngelList um, and some of his early investments in Uber and Twitter and Yammer and OpenDNS, some very incredible companies. So um, he is now, you know, quite widely known as, you know, the founder of AngelList and CoinList and Republic and you know, uh, AngelList bought Product Hunt. So there's a lot of kind of the, the platform of Silicon Valley um, that very much knows AngelList. You know, that's where founders go to hire. It's where employees go to get startup jobs. It's where investors go to find deal flow. Um, they just launch rolling funds. And so there's they're increasingly becoming like the platform that Silicon Valley runs on, especially as Silicon Valley um, kind of moves into the cloud and becomes more, more global. Mm-hmm. Um, it's becoming kind of more and more relevant. Um, but Naval over the last five or 10 years has become like incredibly widely followed on Twitter, his podcast. Um, you know, he does his on periscopes for basically, you know, he's kind of in the life stage where he is sharing what he knows mm-hmm. um, through Twitter and through interview, no, less interviews than uh, he just kind of talks to his partner, Nivy um, and shares everything that he knows. And it's truly incredible. Um, incredible content. I have found it kind of like refreshingly direct and uh, efficient and it kind of matched with some of the things that I already believed but didn't know how to phrase or articulate. Um, And this kind of first hit me when um, I listened to his interview on the Knowledge Project, uh, Mm -hmm. Shane Parrish's uh, The Farm Street Podcast. And that was such a brilliant interview. I think it was one of the most popular podcasts that Shane has ever done. And I think it like ranked very, very high um, on like breakers. Like I think it was like the number one podcast of the year on listening wow. to breaker or something like that. Um, that uh, might be incorrect. Um, but there's a lot, he has a lot of, I think a million Twitter followers now. Um, and it's just kind of an interesting mix of extremely practical advice on building wealth that is more based on principles um, that pr- you can apply pretty much no matter where you are in your, your journey um, and some principles on learning the, the skill of happiness, um, you know, realizing that it's mutable, understanding where happiness comes from, how to kind of change some of your thinking patterns um, to just become a, a happier person as a baseline. And, you know, there's not a lot of people who combine those ideas and those, uh, lessons and certainly not many people, certainly no one who does it with as much, um, information density and clarity as, as Naval does. It's an interesting personal monopoly that he has there. Yeah. Yeah. So just to kind of like give a good explanation of how this book works, I'm going to share a quote from, I think it was the introduction here. You said, I created this book as a public service. Tweets, podcasts, and interviews quickly get buried and lost. Knowledge this valuable deserves a more permanent, accessible format. That is my mission with this book. So basically, you took all 
the Naval content on the internet, right? All the, the podcasts, the interviews, the articles, the tweets, everything. And you uh, weave that together into a narrative entirely in his words, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it started out well over a million words. Um, I think uh, <laughs> across all the sources, <laughs> it's almost a hundred sources and like a sort, you know, one source is Twitter, which is 20,000 right. tweets. Right. Um, so it was an enormous effort of curation and organization and uh, just threading things together and reorganizing them and creating new information hierarchies, understanding which ideas fit each other. And, you know, of this one idea that he's articulated 10 times over five years across all these different sources, which explanation is the best and which fits the most with, you know, what's around it in this book. Um, and so it is really, um, it's kind of a, it's almost a jigsaw puzzle, a conceptual jigsaw puzzle where you have to like pick up each piece and then like completely grok it and figure out whether you want it in this book or not, whether it's the best version of this piece or not, and then figure out where it fits with the things that are already there. Mm. Um, and, and there's a ton of pieces that you're not sure which ones you should use for the final kind of book. Um, so from a million words, we, the book, the final book is less than 50,000. Um, so it is, it is a very, very, um, insight dense information, rich, like uh, my goal for this book is to be the most highlighted book in the Kindle store. Um, and I think that absolutely everyone can get at least one life changing insight out of it somewhere. Um, because there's just so much, you know, most books are one idea expanded into 50,000 words, and this is a lifetime of ideas condensed down into one one book that's 50,000 words. Um, you know, Naval is so information dense already, you know, um, that really trying to curate that down even more, you end up with like this really, really potent kind of, kind of book. Um, but yeah, I, I remember listening to that podcast and just thinking like, God, this is such a valuable thing. It's not, it's not searchable. It's not readable. You know, there's so many people who don't listen to podcasts who don't mm. do Twitter. Um, that, that there's just, people are missing out on this and it is not going to necessarily live on well in its current form. Um, right. You know, we'd podcasts have only been around for, you know, 10 years. They've only been popular for half that. Um, we don't know how this information is going to age. We don't know, you know, you know, Twitter, even Twitter is impossible to search more than any accounts, most recent 3000 tweets or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so part of this was was getting that that his full historical export of Twitter and, um, you know, curating all that down. There's just so much value um, in all of this stuff that I, I just couldn't let it, um, I couldn't let it slide off into history. Like I really wanted to to pull it out and to preserve it and to put it in. You know, the book is a very like Lindy friendly format. Like there's books that have been around for thousands of years, and if we can put it in that format. Um, I think one is a lot more accessible for people who don't have an introduction to Naval. Um, and so that's some of the feedback that I'm getting already that makes me incredibly happy. That's like, I've been trying to get my friend to listen to this podcast, but they don't really do podcasts and not on Twitter, but I'm trying to like explain Naval and, and like, you've given me the perfect kind of on-ramp. It's like, awesome. That's exactly what I was hoping is that this can be an introduction to, to some of Naval's most popular ideas and most useful ideas. And that that can lead people in a bunch of different directions as they finish the book. If they want to learn more about his thoughts on education or investing or crypto or 
um, you know, just read some of the nonfiction or philosophy that he recommends, you know, those are all really awesome kind of paths forward in life that if you can, this book kind of gives you the momentum and the interest to continue some of that on, you know, that's awesome. And, and if it preserves some of these ideas that I think, um, that have changed my life and that can change other people's lives and, and can help that kind of, um, for a whole, you know, another generation or two, that would be, that'd be an incredible outcome. Yeah. I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of different threads I want to pull here. Um, the first is you mentioned this being very Lindy. Can you explain just briefly what, what that means? Yeah. The Lindy effect, um, I've found from Tlaib, I'm not sure if he, I don't think he originated it, but he certainly repopularized it. Um, and it's a rough way to assess the relevance of something over a long period of time. So um, if a book has been around for 2000 years, you assume it can be around another 2000 years. Um, you just kind of assume you are at the midpoint of relevance of this, you know, piece, this popularity. Um, so, you know, if uh, a book is only one year old, no matter how popular it is, you shouldn't assume necessarily that it will be popular in a hundred years. Um, if it's a hundred years old, it'll probably still be relevant in a hundred years. You just got, it's a very, very rough kind of calculation of, you know, how important is this thing? How timeless is this thing it, more timeless than important? Right. Um, but if you equate those two, then yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's a cool concept that I think everybody should know. And it's a good, you know, just kind of rule of thumb for judging, uh, how, how useful something is. And if you want to spend your time looking at it or not. Yeah, it makes it easy for me um, to ignore the news, uh, as increasingly people are doing. You know, the, there are reasons to stay current on what's happening. Um, but if you are trying to, you know, build skills and build insights, um, the news becomes irrelevant quite quickly. And so, if you spend an hour a day reading, you know, philosophy or science that have been applicable for decades or hundreds or thousands of years, you are probably going to become you are going to embody those skills and learn more permanent information than you would if you spent that hour a day reading the news. Um, right, right. And, and I hadn't thought about this before, but as I'm thinking through it, like Twitter is kind of by definition, the least Lindy thing that there is <laughs> like it, Twitter becomes irrelevant, like with hours or minutes. Um, you know, there's kind of the flavor of the day on Twitter. Um, whereas, you know, meditations by Marcus Aurelius has been around for thousands of years. Sure. That said, though, if you are curating your Twitter feed in the right way and following people like Naval, a lot of it will be very Lindy, right? Yeah, it, there are people who use Twitter very differently than others. Um, yeah. And so that's, that is definitely part of the game. Um, I'm noticing that Twitter is giving us less and less control over our feeds, which I find disturbing. Um, you know, it started with the algorithm and now it's like following topics and now it's following, is populating tweets that people who you follow liked. Um, and so it's just like systematically giving you less and less control, which inherently gives Twitter more and more control, which I don't love. Um, yeah. so it is not as easy. It's not as foolproof as it used to be to just kind of choose who you follow and you know, your brain won't get polluted with a bunch of bullshit. Right. Yeah. It makes it a lot more of an echo chamber. And for people who are kind of trying to question their own assumptions, it makes that a lot harder to do, which is kind of frustrating for me. Yeah. Uh, so the other thing you said, your goal about making this the most highlighted book in the Kindle store, I thought that was hilarious because when I was preparing for this podcast, I'm, you know, I'm reading through your book and I thought, you know, let me just highlight the things that I like the best and then I'll come back and write those things down and we'll talk about them. Well, I finished and I'm like, fuck, the whole book is yellow. <laughs> I don't think we have time to talk about everything here, but, um, 
That's yeah. perfect. That's exactly what I was going for. <laughs> and really, like as I started to read through, I was like, okay, I really need to be more selective about what I'm going to highlight. But what's what's cool is if you're highlighting all that stuff, it means you know every section is relevant. And and what's kind of cool about the book is that it doesn't need to be read in chronological order. You can open to any page, any chapter, whatever, and just start reading and mm-hmm. uh, find something that's that's useful. And and page. 10 doesn't rely on page nine, which, which I like, um, you know, you can open to the happiness section when you're having trouble with happiness, you can open to the investing section when you're about to make an investment. So it's, it's a very useful guide that people should be keeping on their desks, you know, to open it at any point. Yeah. It doesn't really, I think it pulls you in, in the sense that I structured it so that it feels like Naval is talking to you yeah. and I tried to thread it really carefully to make sure that it was contiguous and felt like one kind of stream of consciousness. Um, but I also was very deliberate in making it um, on, on the advice of Nivi actually um, a fractal experience. And so I, I, the tweets are used kind of like aphorisms almost that summarize the content. Mm. And so you can just open the book to any page and the tweets are formatted such that they kind of jump off the page and you can just flip a page and just read the tweets and just kind of see, Oh, that's an interesting thought. That's an interesting thought. Oh, I really want to dive in around this tweet. I want to understand. I want to unpack this one. I want to immerse myself in this idea. And so you can read kind of the few paragraphs around it and that will really flesh out the tweet or help you understand that idea or, or go deeper on it. And so it's really easy to kind of engage with it on multiple levels. You know, you can treat it like a book of aphorisms. You can treat it like a conversation with them all, or you just read the whole thing through. You can treat it like a reference book um, where you're just like, God, like, you know, the, the process of this kind of gave me a, a like a little Naval that sits on my shoulder. So like, I know what <laughs> Naval would say about a lot of different things as I'm thinking it, uh, which is an incredible gift. And I'm glad I, you know, went through this experience to have it. I hope the book provides that for, for other people. Um, just like, what would Naval say about this? Would he like, does this pass his checks? Does this, um, is this investment, you know, up to snuff? Is it, you know, um, I'm in a bad mood. Like what would Naval tell me like would resolve this? Um, and, and all that information is easy to find, you know, it's a few flips away. Um, so I, I hope that it scales kind of the, the help and the guidance and the, um, insight and wisdom that, uh, that I've gotten from, you know, studying this and, and reading it over and over and over again for the past few years. Yeah, I, I think it absolutely will. And I, I think, you know, you nailed the format and it's actually a pretty novel format. And I think this is going to be the first, I hope this is the first of many similar books because there are so many people who would be fantastic to have this kind of quick reference guide into their thinking. Um, is this the first of many for you or do you see this as a one and done? Yeah. It's funny you say that. I'm, I am not certain yet. Um, I really want to see what happens and how, um, how it's received and what people think mm-hmm. and what the, what the format is. I loved it. And it was an amazing experience for me to do. I already, there was a list of people that I would love to, um, kind of study to the level that I studied Naval. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it is a, the format itself was a very hard one. See, took a lot of work and, uh, 
kind of creative difficulty and challenge and, you know, sleepless nights to figure out how this should feel as a final product. Um, you know, I knew like Naval and curation were really the only kind of like ideas that I started with. And so even, even whether or not this would be a book necessarily at the beginning, um, was a thing that I struggled with and, and had to kind of come to terms with. And then whether or not I included any editorial from myself or whether it was a hundred percent, you know, from Naval's words himself. Um, and I, I think, you know, that was some of the early feedback is like, I know this is a book, but it also feels like you created a new medium, like it's a mm. new application of what a book is. Right. Um, and it, and it hits different than a lot of other books, you know, people have read, which is an incredible, you know, compliment and, and something I appreciate. So I, I can absolutely see doing more of these. Um, I actually saw the, I remember reading principles, um, and in it, Ray Dalio says like that he wished other people would write their version of principles. Um, and that was one of the kind of seeds that stuck in my head and realizing that, especially now with podcasts, it, it is so much easier to just get interviewed, um, or to tweet than it is to sit down and write a book and structure everything. Right. But the raw materials of people's thought processes and experiences and, and biographies and stuff are all out there. Um, it is a shitload of work to turn it into a book, but I think it's a, it is a valuable experience for me to go through and it's a valuable thing for readers. Um, and I hope it's, it is a valuable thing for, for the, you know, author or creator, quote unquote, for, for Naval. Um, mm -hmm. you know, this, I think this helps him scale his ideas. It turns them into a new format. It'll introduce new people to his thinking and his, um, you know, his other podcasts. I'm certain that it'll feed back into the other things that he's doing and people will kind of continue to follow and, um, learn more because he's still creating so much great new stuff all the time. Um, so I, I think it is a, I think it's a win, 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 um, I would love to continue to do these, um, but I don't have a, I don't have the next one picked out yet. Exactly. Um, and well, I just ran a marathon. You got to give me a minute before we, uh, <laughs> before I <laughs> schedule the next one. Well, I, I asked that question because I'm a big Ryan holiday fan and he talks about, you know, kind of the daily process. He always says that when he sends his current book to the publisher, he mm -hmm. just turns over the page and starts on the next one, you know? Yeah, Ryan. Uh, I have a day job that Ryan doesn't have. Um, <laughs> uh, it's it's yeah. quite impressive what you've done here. The uh, medium is very it. cool. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I don't, I'm 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 really interested to see where this goes. Um, you know, we're kind of putting it out in the universe and see what happens. And uh, yeah, I don't I don't know exactly what the next step is. I think there's really interesting stuff to do. Um, around this book and with this, you know, community too. I think, um, there's actually a, the last chapter of the book is, uh, Naval's recommended reading. Mm -hmm. And so there's a ton of, of book recommendations that he has given, um, over the years. And it's really interesting to read through that and see kind of where he gets some of the ideas that he's gotten. Um, you know, and so you see where, you know, the wealth building stuff comes from sapiens and from the sovereign individual and from Paul Graham and, um, you know, all of these kind of influences and the happiness comes from Krishnamurti and, um, you know, some of the Osho and some of the philosophers that he's read for a long time. And it is a very, um, I can completely imagine, you know, people who read this book wanting to read some of those books together and do like a reading group or a study group around mm -hmm. some of the books that Naval recommends. Uh, and so that would be a, an interesting next step. And I can totally see assembling some of that kind of in the, um, in the way that the online great books program 
does that just put together a little seminar um, of, you know, 12 to 20 people that kind of are reading and talking about the same thing and really help baking in the lessons and holding each other accountable for kind of continuing to study and learn. Um, so that might be an interesting next step. I can see, you know, doing another, another almanac if we find the right, uh, the right person. Um, I don't know who I'm curious who you would want to, uh, to see next. That's something I'd have to take some time and think on. I think Naval is unique in that, you know, there, there are no biographies written of him. Right. Mm -hmm. And and I, I think that's something that's, you know, a lot of people who are living today and, and he's, he's relatively young too, right? Like around around 50, maybe Um, there are not going to be biographies of those people. So that, that uh, classification of person would be somebody who would be more conducive to this format. Um, Yeah. It's a tough needle to thread. It's like, um, they have to have like a, a large kind of digital presence, but probably not already be writing their own books. Um, and not, you know, you know, there's a few books about Elon Musk already. Um, you know, I think like there's more Silicon Valley icons that kind of mm. fit into that world for sure. Um, yeah. but Naval is kind of an interesting, uh, interesting cross because his ideas are so applicable to so many people, you know, it's not just a, how to build a company book at all. Um, right. right. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, it, it, Morgan, I'm really interested to kind of step back. Morgan Housel might be, might be cool for this. Mm. You know, he puts out a lot of, a lot of interesting content like that. And, you know, he, he's about to publish a book also, but it's not, it's not biographical in any way. So. Yeah, I'm really psychology of money. I'm really interested to uh, to get my hands on that one. I love Morgan's writing. Yeah, me too. I'm a big fan. All right, let's let's jump in and talk about actually some of these concepts from from Naval. Uh, cool. I've got a huge list here, so I'm just gonna kind of pick yeah. pick randomly, and we'll see where it goes. But one of the things that I really love from him, an idea I love from Naval, is uh, how he thinks about setting a high hourly rate for yourself and then not doing things you can hire somebody to do for less. Um, I think this is a really hard concept for a lot of people to internalize, especially frugal people. But I think the results are amazing, especially for knowledge workers. Uh, so what are, what are your thoughts on this idea? Yeah, uh, it's a thing that I intellectually totally agree with and understand. Um, and I've had a difficult time like practicing myself, um, you know, as, as, like you said, as somebody who's frugal, um, and, and kind of do it yourself biased. Um, you know, I've seen people hire, you know, personal assistants or virtual assistants, like stunningly early in their careers. And it, it does seem to be an accelerant if you, uh, kind of can take the time to, to train them. Right. And, um, ensure that they are actually like a very helpful, um, you know, piece of like your organization and like learn enough about how you operate so that you can, um, you can actually stop thinking about some of the things that they take care of for you. Uh, Naval's examples are, are pretty extreme. Like, you know, set yourself an hourly rate of a thousand dollars an hour. Right. Um, it, it is a really useful way to, to force yourself to think about leverage in a more, in a numerical sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the leverage concept being like employees are one class of leverage um, in the sense that you can get more done when you have more help, whether that's from, you know, scalable tools, uh, tools themselves, capital, employees, um, or, or media that is scalable. So we've got, you know, getting employees um, helps you do more in less time. 
uh, and setting your own hourly rate incredibly high just kind of gives you that opportunity cost perspective. And so you're evaluating things from a sense of like, if I wasn't doing this $10 an hour task of, you know, moving my website between, you know, WordPress and Squarespace or whatever, like what else would I be doing with this time? Um, and it kind of forces you to evaluate how you're using some of this, these low cost hours. Um, and it really puts you in the mindset of like, what is the most important thing I can do today mm-hmm. that, that will generate the most value over the long term? What are the things that only I can do? And what are the things? And then the next test is like, if this is really critical to get done, how can I hire some help to get this done? Um, and it, I think it takes some practice. It takes doing it a few times to actually get a sense of how much easier it is um, or to get a sense of that it was worth doing. Um, and I think it becomes a lot easier after you have like even some basic cash flow. Yeah. Um, so once you, you know, people who are running service businesses probably have a little bit of an easier time doing this because you're constantly doing the math of, you know, I'm billing at X dollars an hour. My value is Y dollars an hour and I can outsource this task for $10 an hour. So like I should absolutely be doing that so that I can spend more time working on high billable hour stuff. Um, but if you're, you know, creating a podcast or writing or, you know, in something more like Hitstra, you're developing software, it's much harder to do that math. Um, and, but, but in the long run, the math we should have the same outcome, right? You know, yeah. you're, you're trying to put in your hours and create a product that creates profit for you, um, and outsourcing, you know, as many things as you can. Um, but it's, it is relatively on a tactical level is relatively easy and cheap to get started. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just go to Upwork, you know, set yourself, I'm going to set aside $200 this month to do tasks and Upwork lets you set that like hard budget and hire someone give them the best information that you can. Um, and you know, worst case scenario is your $200 goes to zero and nothing was accomplished and you spent some time communicating with someone, but like the downside of that, you've got, you know, that's 20 hours of work from somebody. The odds that you don't get, they don't get anything accomplished that you wanted them to get accomplished in 20 hours is quite low. Um, and so you can really, um, you can test this, you know, take a baby step for a relatively low cost. It's just a mental hurdle. Um, that I think, you know, people think of employment as like, oh, I can't afford an employee that's $50,000 a year. Um, but we have all these tools for fractional employment and for hiring help, um, or even ask, you know, a family friend or, you know, someone in your family to, Hey, I really need help with this. And it's funny. I noticed, um, you really love chew dog. That was one of your favorite books. Um, and I, I just recently reread that. Um, I love it too. And it's interesting to see early on that, like, you know, it wasn't, Phil Knight hiring someone full-time necessarily. It was like, Hey, I'll give you, you know, five bucks an hour for 10 hours a week to help me, you know, accomplish these, like handle these orders or build me a logo or whatever. It was a lot of fractional employment of people that he was already connected with Mm -hmm. um, while he had a full-time job. I mean, he was still working as an accountant as he was getting uh, blue ribbon shoes at that point off the ground. And so it was really just him kind of trying to, um, trying to leverage himself and he, you know, he only had 20 hours a week to work on the business or whatever. And so he had to, he was forced to kind of get some of that help in. Um, and you know, he had enough, he was constantly reinvesting the profits, um, in, in more team members, more help, more, uh, more inventory. Uh, so getting some of that leverage, um, 
and seeing other people apply it is uh, was helpful for me too in kind of overcoming some of that initial um, initial question of like, how do I value my time? How do I value this task? You know, how cheaply can I actually get it done? Is it worth the trouble to spend the time to go get someone to set it up to do it? Yeah, yeah, it's it's an important concept and and one that I think kind of catapults progress once you can internalize it and apply it. So that's that's one of the big takeaways I had from the book. Another, well, two other big themes in the book are leverage and judgment. And one quote I really liked said, "A leveraged worker can outproduce a non-leveraged worker by a factor of one thousand or ten thousand. With a leveraged worker, judgment is far more important than how much time they put in or how hard they work." Now, I think a lot of people know what leverage is, but maybe not specifically in in Naval's context. So can you kind of explain that idea? And maybe you might want to do it through the real estate example from the book. I thought that was a really good one, but if you have a better one, that's that's fine too. Yeah, the real estate example was was really helpful for me. And, And once you hear that in one industry, it is much easier to kind of apply it across a bunch of different industries. Um, leverage in this context is not necessarily like debt financial leverage the way it's used in the finance world um, or on Wall Street. So in this context, there's three large classes of leverage, um, which are employees, uh, capital, and products with no marginal cost of replication, uh, which we clearly need a better name for. But um, that would be right? (laughs) IP. uh, Actually, Jim O'Shaughnessy called it uh, like symbol manipulation, um, which I think is a really kind of a good... um, a little bit pithier, a little bit more abstract, um, but it is basically writing code, writing books, creating podcasts, writing music, um, anything that, you know, whether it's 10 or a hundred or a thousand or a million people who listen to it, it costs you the same amount of effort to create. Right. And so in that sense, like a leveraged, someone who plays, you know, a song in a bar for a hundred people is doing the same thing that someone who is playing a song in a recording booth that a million people listen to, they are spending the same hour, they're exerting the same amount of effort, um, but they get the benefits of a million people listening to their music versus you know someone who's inherently limited by the size of the room uh, that they're in and the time that they have put into playing that, that song. Um, so the real estate example uh, is, is kind of like, there's different levels of how much leverage can be applied. So if you are an individual contractor, like working on a house as an hourly, an hourly laborer, um, you know, you're laying bricks, you're paid $10 an hour, you are accountable only that those bricks are created well, uh, you know, that pathway is laid, something like that. Um, and if you don't do your job, like you'll get fired, but it's $10 an hour. Um, you're not responsible for much, you're not risking much. You don't have to know a lot. You know, you need to know your trade, but you don't need to balance, you know, a ton of different things. You really only need, you know, that relationship with the contractor who's paying you. Um, as that, the next level up would be a general contractor who is taking on some accountability to ensure that, you know, the pathway is laid, the landscaping is done, the house is painted all by a certain date. Um, they may be laying out cash, so financial leverage in order to get that done and pay the contractors before the homeowner pays them. They need to have scale skills so that they can, uh, you know, get the, that homeowner to trust them and give them, you know, the flexibility to do that job and maybe listen to their creative input um, and communicate with them. The next level above a general contractor might be uh, a house flipper or real estate developer who is combining, you know, a bank loan to buy a whole house to then hire a general contractor or uh, multiple general contractors to handle, 
you know, uh, redoing the landscaping and redoing the foundation and redoing the roof and renovating the kitchen and taking on, you know, $100,000 in financial accountability in order to flip this house, but they potentially make, you know, $50,000 on a flipped house rather than, you know, the, the hourly worker who's only making $10 an hour, but taking no personal risk. Sure. Um, cause that house flip can go poorly. Right. And that, you know, that contractor might be stuck or the, the flipper might developer might be stuck owning that house for years, unable to sell it if they make a mistake or, um, you know, if a contractor, you know, runs off with money, like that's money out of their pocket. So mm-hmm. they get the upside. They also get the downside. That's kind of the combination of accountability and leverage that can work uh, for or against you. A level above that is somebody like, um, you know, Zillow or 42 floors or someone who's employing uh, huge amounts open door, like they're taking on billions of dollars of debt. They're hiring teams of software developers. They are putting every ounce of, they're hiring like world-class experts in valuing these homes and doing what that house flipper is doing like thousands and thousands of times across the country automatically with, with computers and taking on enormous accountability and enormous leverage and enormous, you know, potential downside risk. Um, so it is really like all, there are levels up and you see people, um, you know, one of my favorite books, uh, I think you'd really like it too, is the fish that ate the whale. Oh, I love that book. I love yeah. it. Yeah. So that <laughs> it is essentially a whole book that follows one, you know, Russian Jewish immigrant from selling individual bananas on the street um, out of a train car, like with $5 in his pocket, risking his whole net worth every week to buy new, new bananas and sell them on the street. Um, all the way up to, he founds a company, he buys swaths of land in Central America, he buys boats, he overthrows governments with mercenaries in order to keep, you know, his banana taxes down. It, it is a truly incredible story in one lifetime. Um, and, and, the United Fruit, which was like, you know, the enormous kind of evil corporation of the moment, um, ends up buying his company. And then he becomes, he like overthrows that, the current executives, because they were mismanaging the company and becomes the CEO of United Fruit. It is a truly incredible life story that shows how one person can start from essentially an hourly job at 14 and through layering leverage and accountability and learning all of the skills of a whole trade work all the way up through um becoming you know incredibly influential like ceo incredibly wealthy incredibly like geopolitically powerful um it, it is an absolutely wild story that is like the book version of kind of naval's um illustration of the application of leverage yeah that's that's a fantastic book i can't recommend that highly enough i actually have it written down on a sticky note to go pull out of my storage unit because I haven't read it in a couple of years and I wanted to read it again. Uh, that one's written by Rich Cohen and he is just a tremendous author, great storyteller. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. And it's got, you know, all history of New Orleans in there. It's got the history of the Central American Peninsula. It's got uh, it, like some interesting stuff about, um, you know, the biology, the science behind bananas. Um, Yep. It, it is like an incredible, and it's only it's a relatively short book for how yeah. much is in there. Um, yeah, Brent Brent Bishore recommended that one to me and recommends it often as just like uh, an absolute. I mean, Sam Zamuri had a hard life. Um, like for sure, the people you know farming bananas in the jungle is no joke. Um, 
and a lot of people died and a lot of people got sick and it was a challenged legacy and um there's a lot of controversy uh it is an absolutely fascinating fascinating book it is it is indeed so uh, jumping back to your real estate example where you talked about zillow uh, i just kind of want to tie that back into uh, what Jim O'Shaughnessy called symbol manipulation, right? Or s- symbol shuffling, whatever. Uh, Zillow has actually done that and leveraged to the point of having um, the product with zero marginal cost, right? In their in their software. So every time an additional user uses that software, it doesn't cost them anything else, but it, it makes them money, right? Yeah, Zillow is a complicated business. Um, so it, it is easier that is more true when you look at a specific example like the zillow's estimate right like that algorithm yeah. was written once and whether a million people use it or a hundred million people use it that there's no marginal cost to um and actually that algorithm probably gets better the more information that goes into it and the more yeah. people use it it's easier to reinvest in the quality of it uh, you know google search algorithm is the same way right like that is written once whether there's you know a million searches that day or a billion searches that day um, and so that is kind of the the symbol manipulation piece. Is software is one of the most um, the most scalable, you know, form of permissionless leverage that Naval says. No one can stop you from writing software, as long as you got a laptop. You know, you can open it up, you can write software, you can put it out on GitHub, you can you know make money off that. Um, you know, YouTube is the same way with music, with podcasts. Uh, you know, anybody can get a WordPress account, start writing. Like these are permissionless forms of, of publication um, that can really be the foundation of something something incredibly great. Sure. So I, I think tying into leverage, uh, equally important, they kind of play off of each other, is is judgment. And this might be my favorite quote from the book is Naval's definition of judgment. He says, my definition of wisdom is knowing the long-term consequences of your actions wisdom applied to external problems is judgment. Can you talk about the relationship between leverage and judgment? Yeah, I think um, the example that he uses not long after that, that I found really illustrative um, is thinking about it in terms of specific people. So Warren Buffett has exceptional judgment. Mm-hmm. He, his value to Berkshire Hathaway is his judgment. He is a billionaire dozens of times over because of his judgment. Um, he has spent his entire life reading, thinking, testing, um, building judgment, seeing the results of you know the decisions that he's made and reapplying them to new things absolutely obsessively for going on basically two consecutive careers, you know, normal career lengths now. Um, and he is it is an illustration of the value of judgment. You know, what like you can't make a reasonable argument that you should be paid the same as Warren Buffett for doing the same job because he is so obviously better at his job. You know, even if you if you are a capital allocator and Warren Buffett is a capital allocator, he has hundreds of billions of dollars at his disposal because his judgment is so good. That's why people buy Berkshire Hathaway stock. That's why you know the companies are happy to be owned by him and reinvest their profits into Berkshire Hathaway. Um, you know, that is the example um but there are smaller versions of it you know all over the place why does one you know landscaping company grow and one dies it is the judgment of that owner of that company to make slightly different decisions to make um you know maybe bolder bets to understand Mm -hmm. the out the outcome of 
implementing one process or another, of hiring the right person, of treating customers one way and not another. Um, so it is really, it takes time to build that judgment and see, you know, place bets, observe what happens, um, study and understand, you know, the outcomes of your actions, you know, what, what reality does when you make one decision or another, um, and figure out how to, to get that going forward. But it really helped me. Um, I love that concept because it shows you the value of refining your own mind and you're refining your own decision-making and understanding that that is a huge part of your own value over the long run mm. is just building your judgment and having faith in it. Um, and that, you know, leverage will follow that good judgment. So the reason that, you know, millions and millions of people listen to Joe Rogan is the same reason that millions and millions of people, um, try to invest all their money in, you know, benchmark or Sequoia as a venture capital fund is the same reason that people try to put all their money in, you know, uh, the medallion fund, Brent Bishore is a great example. Um, you know, there is a long line to invest in permanent equity, um, because of the judgment that, that Brent Bishore has shown. Um, so it is, it is easy to see once you are looking for judgment, it's easy to see, uh, how people value judgment and how people follow judgment. Um, whether that's an audience or capital or, you know, everyone choosing to run, um, you know, one, choose one software product over another, you know, mm. hip, hip chat came out well before Slack. Um, and Slack just absolutely dominated them because of the judgment of those founders and those product people and those designers to create a very different uh, a type of product that served the same basic need, but did it better in every individual way. Um, and now look at the rewards for that. You know, that those are um, those small kind of gaps in judgment that, that one person being better, having better judgment, better product sense, better design, better engineering than another, the gap doesn't have to be huge for the rewards, uh, to be absolutely, you know, 5% better judgment applied over weeks and months and years of decision-making, uh, becomes a significant performance gap. And in a technology world where, you know, winner takes all and there's kind of network effects that if Zillow has the best, you know, house valuation algorithm, Slack, Slack has the best workplace chat software, um, all of the rewards in that whole market are going to end up with that company. And so the, the judgment gap can be small. The results gap can be even bigger. And the like financial outcome gap can be enormous just based off of uh, kind of a small initial gap in judgment. Right. So it sounds to me like judgment is developed over a lifetime, right? So a vast amount of experiences and, and time contributes to good judgment. What tactical things can a person do in the short term to either accelerate that or just kind of tighten the feedback loops to increase your judgment? Yeah, I think tightening feedback loops um, is an excellent one. Um, so, you know, a small example, if you have a sales job that is door-to-door -door instant sales, that's a much tighter feedback loop than if you're selling enterprise deals. Mm. Um, if you are, you know, working in venture capital, that's a much longer feedback loop than somebody who's, you know, placing shorter term bets, um, in the stock market. Um, so you are, can learn faster when your feedback loop is significantly tighter. Um, you know, when you feel, you know, uh, the pain of, of failure quickly, um, you know, you learn a lot, lot faster. Um, so that tightening feedback loops, I think is a huge one to building judgment. I think just being, uh, intellectually honest with yourself, um, and, and journaling and decision journaling is really good way, um, to do that. Uh, you know, that's something that Shane Parrish has written about a lot. Um, 
you know, it doesn't have to be extensive, even just writing a few paragraphs and, you know, setting yourself a calendar reminder in a few months to go back and look at it. Uh, it's really, really easy to delude yourself if you don't have hard proof on paper that right. this is what you thought when you made the decision. Um, it's really easy to kind of slowly change your mind and rewrite your narrative that you were mm -hmm. right all along, even if you're right for different reasons than you started, which really makes you shouldn't give you additional confidence in your judgment necessarily. Um, but you can still learn from that experience and see, oh, I was right for the wrong reasons, or I was right, but I missed this, um, and start to kind of uh, improve on that very deliberately. Um, one of the things, uh, this is like a little bit of a tangential example, but I think it's a, it's a good one, and um, you can apply it to whatever you're working on. When Benjamin Franklin was trying to teach himself to write well, um, when he was 16, it was before he started the paper or anything, mm -hmm. but he's became the best essayist in America and taught himself to write. And what he would do is take an essay, you know, an excellent, a famous essay, and he would write out the bullet points of what the essay was trying to say. And then he would hide the essay from himself and just take the bullet points and rewrite the essay in his own words from, from the same thesis, but try to be more persuasive, try to be equally eloquent, try to be equally tight and well-organized. Um, and then he would pull out, you know, this previous essay from this amazing writer and compare them and see like, how did I do? What did I miss? What did I get wrong? Um, how could I have been better? Which parts pieces that I do better than this essay did? Um, and, you know, that's a really simple mechanism. Um, but there's ways to kind of teach yourself those things. And I think it's really easy to get in a pattern of consumption. It's really easy to listen to a podcast or read a book or whatever. But if you're not applying that, if you're not testing yourself against reality, if you're not publishing your writing to see how other people respond to it or whether it gets you know, shared or whether it starts an interesting conversation, um, you're not actually sure that you're learning anything. You're not actually getting that feedback loop that kind of helps you um, not just build your judgment, but also have more faith in your judgment. Right. You know, seeing Warren Buffett having, you know, 80 years of investing experience. I mean, he, an overlooked thing is not just that he was brilliant, but that he started when he was eight and he's working until he's almost 90. Like right. that is, you know, more than two times the normal consecutive career. And there's just a lot of compounding judgment that happens in that time when you are working so long on improving your judgment and improving your faith in your judgment in the same thing that lets you confidently apply more and more leverage. You know, one of the things Naval says, like, find your opportunity, build your skills. And when you see an opportunity, move on it with the maximum leverage that you can. When you have mm -hmm. conviction in your judgment and you know what it is, use all the leverage you can against that. And that's, I mean, that's a very startup ethos, right? Raise capital, hire people, hire engineers, like use all of the forms of leverage that you can get to go after that opportunity, especially in technology where, where the rewards are, are so high um, to the winners. And it's if you're going to do that, it's really important to have confidence in your judgment, right? Because you can't mm -hmm. you can't leverage if you don't believe in your judgment. So that's, yeah, and, and other people need to believe in your judgment too, right? That's where you know you can have all your all the faith in your judgment in the world, uh, but if investors don't believe in you, you won't necessarily get the capital. And if employees don't believe in your judgment, they won't want to work for you. And if engineers don't believe in the product vision or the market, you know they won't build the product that you, that you are um, envisioning necessarily. And so. Um, there's a lot, there's a, a lot to be said for your judgment. And for some people, their individual judgment is all they need. If you're an individual investor, um, managing your own portfolio, but if you are trying to assemble all of these different forms of leverage and build a team around you, um, you know, having a track record of that judgment, um, that is understood and provable and tangible, um, is a really, 
is a really important asset. Yeah, for sure. The way Naval thinks about free time is, I think, also very important and actually quite counterintuitive. And I've seen this overlap with a lot of smart people, people like Amos Tversky, Mark Andreessen, Tyler Cowen. Um, they all value having large blocks of free time. Can you talk about how this idea uh, you know, feels counterintuitive, but is actually very productive? Yeah, and free time is maybe a misnomer um, because I think all those people will work incredibly hard. Uh, sure. Yeah, but they do it in a they they are deliberately unstructured, um, and, and I guess I would say they don't commit uh, to to doing a specific thing on a specific day, so that they can always focus on doing the most important thing on that within that moment. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of people who are incredibly busy but don't control their own schedule. They're always reacting. They're always working on, you know, the stuff that's coming into them and they're always playing defense. Um, they're always just handling stuff that's coming at them. And that doesn't necessarily let you go out and find, you know, that next great deal or go out and read about, you know, this emerging kind of interesting field or this new technology where, you know, especially for venture capitalists or, you know, scientists who are doing research, like staying on that edge is really, really important um, because that's where the returns are. Mm. And you've got to, you've got to make time to do that when it needs to be done. And it's really hard to, um, you know, to schedule time for reading or to feel like that's the most important thing that needs to be done that day. And I think, you know, um, most important thing also uh, sometimes can just be the thing that you are the most interested in, you know, um, Andreessen and Naval, as, especially as technology investors, like, they are good at what they do because they're always interested in the new thing. And they have a little bit of like inherent ADD in that, like that's old. That was five years ago. Like, I want to know the new thing. I want to know the next thing, like show me the sci-fi stuff. Um, and that's a, a huge asset. And on the one hand, it feels like, well, you're blowing off like a meeting today to, you know, an important operational meeting to, to go like what read blogs. Um, it's like, well, yeah, but also like that foundation of knowledge is going to make me help me make a very different decision in, you know, six months when I look at one of these companies um, and it's the most, it's the thing that I'm the most interested in. So I will do it with the most enthusiasm and I don't even necessarily know yet how this knowledge is going to be important, but I trust that it is going to help me make a good decision. It's going to feed my judgment and that is going to have a high outcome, high outcome eventually. I think that point right there is what's hardest for most people to understand is I don't know how this is going to impact the outcome, right? Cause if people can't tie you know, what the outcome is to their actions, they have a lot harder time doing it. Um, and if you just understand that, you know, hey, I'm going to block off two hours every single day to read books that are going to move me in the right direction. I don't know exactly how they're going to move me in the right direction, but I'm confident that they're going to. Um, that's hard to internalize, I think, but it's really important. Yeah, it helps to know that basically everything works that way. You know, uh, like you can't plan so carefully, Steve Jobs said this really well in his commencement speech, like that you can only connect the dots looking backwards. Um, you know, in some sense, I don't know where this book is going to take me. I don't know if we're going to do another one. I don't know if, you know, if that will do other projects like with Naval, like there's a lot of uncertainty around it. And I didn't even know, I don't still don't know how it will be received, whether 10 people are going to read it or 10,000 or 10 million, but it is going to be I am glad I have done it. Um, and I know that it will move me 
in the right direction. It has already, you know, um, I'm glad that this information is in my head. I'm glad that I've like produced, you know, a final kind of piece of work. Um, I've already found it gratifying to share it with the people that I've shared it with. Um, so you don't have to know where you're going um, or how a specific action serves a goal for it to be an important and valuable thing to do on any given day. That's a great point. All right. I, I would love to continue talking about these topics for hours, but I think we've given listeners enough to at least pique their interest and, and say, hey, I'm going to pick up that book. Um, I like to wrap up my, my podcasts with questions that I've stolen from people who are much smarter than me. So we'll, we'll run through some of those and uh, then we'll wrap it up. First off, what book have you given most as a gift? Mm, um, probably Shantaram. Um, I love that novel. Um, I think it's beautiful writing. It's a, it's a bear of a book. It's like a thousand pages. Um, a friend gave it to me and the, the tradition now, uh, she gave it to me and I was like, are you kidding me? Look at this thing. Like I'll be dead before I finish this book. And she's like, trust me. And here's the rule. You have to read the first page right now, like open to the first page. And the first page is the like juiciest, baitiest hook I have ever seen in any book. Um, it is a beautiful writing. It's, it's almost like a trailer of everything that's to come. Um, it's a wonderful novel, uh, about the, the backstory very quickly is, um, this is an Australian guy, the wife and kid. Um, he developed a little bit of a drug problem that became a heroin addiction that led him to robbing banks. Um, he ended up in maximum security prison for 20 years. After eight years, he escaped over the front wall in broad daylight and disappeared. Uh, like, and he turns out that he ran to the slums of India and hid in these like villages for years. And it, he was eventually recaptured in Germany, like I think 20 years later, and ended up serving out the rest of his sentence during which he wrote this book about uh, it was a novel about being like a very autobiographical novel. And so you're not sure what's true and what's not. Um, but it is incredible writing and it is a, you know, for something that's a world away from, you know, anything that I'm familiar with, um, it's really beautiful and you feel like you have lived a whole nother life by the time you're done with this book. Um, I, I think it's just incredible. He's enough of a philosopher that there's kind of some like very philosophical, um, conversations like woven into the story. There's, you know, I mean, he becomes a counterfeiter. He works for the Indian mafia. He, travels all over the world. It, it is a truly incredible, um, incredible book. This sounds amazing. And now I'm pissed off. I asked you this question because a thousand pages is going to take me so long to read, but I have to read it. You will, you will fly through it once you kind of get started. Um, and, uh, it, also the audiobook. it's kind of, um, <laughs> the audiobook author is incredible or uh, narrator is incredible. Um, cause he's got like the author has this Australian accent, um, but there's all these Indian characters and all of these wild places and there, he must be the only person in the world who could have done justice to this as an audiobook. Um, but it's exceptional. Nice. All right. That one's good. That one's, uh, going in the Amazon cart. Nice. What purchase of $100 or less has most positively impacted your life? Mm, um, I really love having, uh, chargers like everywhere. There's just cords all over my house. That's a good one. Um, really like tiny touches that are, um, you know, like nice hand soap, um, mm. or like a nice candle or something is kind of like goes a long way, um, that I scoff at, 
sometimes and then I'm glad that I did. Um, yeah, I think those are, those are good. Those are good. Those are good. Remo- removing like small aggravations and then just like adding atmosphere. I think, yeah. um, you know, going, going out of your way to do things that, uh, change your environment a little bit. Plants are a huge one. Um, you know, cheap, cheap plants, put them on your desk. Like, um, there's, there's something like really comforting about having greenery around you. I'll have to try that. What advice would you give to a smart driven college student about to graduate? And that doesn't uh, necessarily have to be in the context of like the current times. Right. But just the college yeah. student in general. Yeah. That's a really, um, that's a tricky one right now. Um, <laughs> I, I would say, um, the so i have a tiny little like i uh, wrote a mini book about this um that i have on amazon it, it it is a i've done a fair amount of these phone calls um that people on twitter find me or whatever You're like can i ask you questions about like basically what i should do leaving college um and the first advice that i have is like choose your choose your manager um not your company or your job mm-hmm. as much um but if you find somebody who like you really like and um you get a lot out of working with and it will go out of their way to kind of teach you. Um, that goes a long way. Um, I think that that has been a huge impact on, on my life. Um, and I've been very grateful for it. Um, I would say like, definitely don't be afraid to, um, kind of learn and research broadly. Um, yeah, don't be afraid to pull in things from other disciplines. Um, don't get super, super attached to any particular career path. Um, cause there's the economy is so staggeringly enormous, um, that there are just millions and millions of incredibly fascinating little niches that can be wildly fruitful and really, really interesting. Um, so don't be afraid to kind of dive in deeply into things that don't necessarily like sound sexy or that other people understand even what the hell they are. Um, cause kind of the further away you go from, you know, the really obvious career paths, um, almost the more opportunity there is. And so if you, if you are comfortable with that, um, there's some, some really interesting and fascinating things to be done, um, in, in some of the very small niches. Great advice. Last one. What is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Mm, uh, there's a lot of answers to that. Yeah. So you listen to a lot of invest like the best. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've had some incredible, um, bosses and managers over the years um you know jeff smith and uh a lot of the crew in, in east lansing i went to michigan state university um was very helpful for me um you know Bo fishback took a huge chance on me hiring me out of out of school um and i will forever appreciate that um but there's nothing that comes close to like what my parents have done um for me and continue to um you know i i've been incredibly grateful for them every day for kind of how they have, um, how they raised me and how they've set me up and, um, the values that they instilled. Um, I'm yeah, wildly grateful to them. I love that answer. Eric, this has been a blast. Um, where can people connect with you if they want to continue the conversation? And then most importantly, where can they get the book? Yeah. Um, so I'm easiest and most active on Twitter. Um, just at Eric Jorgensen, uh, I got open DMs. So holler, um, I've got a personal website with a little bit of writing on it that we talked about today. Uh, ejorgensen.com. Um, the book is at navalmanac.com with a CK at the end. Uh, so that'll have free copies of the book digitally. You can download the PDF or EPUB. 
Um, if you want to buy a physical copy or the Kindle version, you can do it through the site. Um, there are, I'm going to publish everything on the website. Like the whole book will be freely available on the site. And there'll be a ton of stuff that is, um, didn't make the, the final cut. Um, you know, I originally did like a 600 page version of this that was really giant kind of for Charlie's Almanac. Um, and through some very helpful reviews and feedback and editing, um, got it down to like this really, really tight kind of book that I think, um, everyone will love and find ways to dive deeper uh, into their own kind of specific topics of interest, um, hopefully on the site or, or through some of Naval's recommended reading uh, afterwards. So I encourage you to check out the site. I've got some blog posts about, you know, the behind the scenes of the book process and, and what it was like to create all that. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's where to find the goods. Um, but I'm happy to answer questions or, uh, you know, engage on Twitter if anybody's interested. Awesome. I'll link to all that and everything that we talked about. Eric, thank you so much for making the time. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for spending your time listening to the show. If you have any questions, comments, or further topics for discussion, shoot me a message on Twitter at Joseph C. Wells. I'd love to hear from you. And make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter, The Lake Street Journal, at josephcwells.com. Until next time, take care and thanks for listening.